received this little booklet entitled The Great Divide. Now what is this divide it's talking about? It's not the divide between rich and poor, which sadly is always getting wider and wider. It's not the divide between the West and the rest, which in fact is getting narrower. The West used to be the the rulers of the world, but now with international travel and immigration, things are closing in together. Neither is it the divide between the saved and the unsaved, which will always be a divide. No. The booklet outlines what it claims is the biggest challenge facing the church today. That is the sacred-secular divide. Now what is that? Well, let me ask you a question. Don't have to shout out, but just think about it. Think of the first thing that comes into your mind. What is the Lord's work. Now did you think about a pastor, minister, about a missionary, we heard about our missionary in Bolivia just earlier on, an elder, a deacon in the church, Sunday school teacher, youth leader. Yes, all of these things are part of the Lord's work. But what about a teacher, a nurse, a solicitor, office manager, personal assistant, lorry driver, estate agent, armed forces, a parent? Unless you consider these also as part of the Lord's work, then you are suffering from the sacred-secular divide. Because a Christian doing those kinds of jobs is also doing the Lord's work. The antidote to the sacred-secular divide is to accept that there is nothing secular except sin. To recognize a whole life gospel and embrace with joy all the opportunities and challenges that God offers us in his world. Christians are followers of Christ. That is obvious. But we are not just individuals following Christ. We are part of the worldwide body of the church and also members of the local congregation, the local fellowship, the local assembly. So that means that the response to the sacred-secular divide has not only been on an individual basis, but it has also been among churches. And looking at the history of the church, there have been two opposite responses to this issue of the sacred-secular divide. One is separation, and the other is accommodation. Looking back over the history, about 2,000 years of church history, there is a long tradition of Christians separating themselves off from the world. It began with the hermits who took themselves off into the desert 
uh, lived in caves and then it led to monasticism got monasticism the little monk that's him and these people they wanted to live a holy life they were sincere seekers after God but they could see that there was corruption in the world and so they wanted to come aside out of that corruption to be alone with God in a community and to concentrate on God alone they were separating themselves from a corrupt world but they were also separating themselves from an increasingly corrupt church and in that community set apart they lived a life of meditation and prayer and although there were benefits to this separation because during the time of the dark ages it was there that faith was kept alive and it was there that the manuscripts of the Bible were copied and preserved and yet their impact would have been so much greater if they hadn't been such escapists and hidden themselves away from the world granted there were some who connected with society through itinerant preaching like the Franciscans but the vast majority hid themselves away in the cloisters and took no active part in the world this I believe is the sacred secular divide at its most divisive and today it can be seen in the popular face of the Amish I'm sure you know of the Amish if you've never visited I'm sure you've uh, seen pictures if you have seen the film The Witness uh, it's set in the Amish community their whole way of life is one of separation from the modern world and they have preserved for themselves their distinctive dress their uh, behavioural code and yes they are seeking to follow Christ in their own way they shun any modern conveniences like electricity or motor cars and they even do not like having their photographs taken because that might lead to pride and yet although there is much to commend their community they are very insular they are not reaching out they have separated themselves from the world but we don't have to go to Pennsylvania to find churches who separate themselves from the world there are churches today who regard everything connected with the world as corrupt and evil and so they say must be avoided at all costs and they claim biblical precedent for this they look at a verse such as Paul's injunction in 2 Corinthians 6.17 therefore come out from them and be separate says the Lord touch no unclean thing and I will receive you and so they take this literally 
and they remove themselves from the world and they are in their own Christian community again insular from the world churches like that can be strong on evangelism they see this as their duty and of course so it is it's the duty of all Christians to share their faith but their evangelism is often of the kind that can put most people off they preach at people they shout at people I'm sure many of us have seen preaching like this in street corners I've seen it and as a Christian I have to say I don't find much in it to commend the Christian faith churches like this have little or no time for the culture or for the welfare of the church yes they emphasize truth but they do so at the expense of grace and love but we of course are not like this we are an open church we want to spread out but isn't it true that we feel much more comfortable in the confines of our own church fellowship rather than at the coal face of the world out there I do but could it be that there is a sense of escapism in that so that's the first reaction that we have historically and contemporary to the sacred secular divide one of separation the second is accommodation and this is the total opposite of the first but again looking at church history this also has a long tradition for the first three centuries of the church there was persecution and even through that persecution the church grew and grew and grew and one early church father said the blood of the martyrs is seed he saw that it was through the persecution through those who were giving up their lives for their faith that God was using this to grow and expand his church but all that started to change with this one man does anybody know who that is a Roman emperor Constantine you can't see it the name is actually here it doesn't come, come uh, out in that slide Constantine he became Roman emperor in the early 4th century and does anybody know where that statue is it's actually in England it's in the city of York right beside York Minster that's York Minster in the background why is a Roman emperor uh, honoured with a statue in York it was because he was serving in York at the time that he was proclaimed emperor of the Roman Empire but Constantine he was the first emperor to embrace Christianity now it's 
disputed whether he actually converted to Christ or just took on the name of Christ. Uh, scholars still debate that today. But he embraced Christianity. It came about through a decisive battle. There were two uh, claimants to the emperor's throne. And the decisive battle was fought at Milvian Bridge just north of Rome. And it said that the night before the battle, Constantine was given a vision. And it was the vision of a symbol. The symbol of a Cairo. Don't know if anybody knows what a Cairo is. It's two Greek letters. Chi is like Rx. And Rho is like a shepherd's crook, crook. A long staff with the curly top. And the symbol was the, the chi, the X, with the row going up in the middle. And a voice from heaven said to him, By this symbol you will conquer. And the symbol, because it's the first two letters, Cairo of Christ, Christos in Greek. And he had this symbol put on the shields of his soldiers, and he won the battle. And from then on, he embraced Christianity. And from being an outlawed and persecuted religion, it became tolerated and then eventually became the state religion. And it became closely linked with the state. And eventually what it came to mean was that to be a citizen of the empire meant to be a Christian. The demands of the gospel, of repentance and faith, were no longer required. The difference between nationality and religion became blurred. And this was the beginning of what was called Christendom, like a Christianized society. And so the church began to accommodate the world. And through the years, despite the Reformation, the evangelical revivals, and the movements of the Spirit, churches which accommodate themselves to the world are still in evidence today. They practice what's known as liberal theology. And what that means is, yes, they accept the Bible as a religious book, but they don't accept it as the Word of God written. They see it as the words of men, as they are reflecting on God. So it's not infallible. It it contains errors in their mind. And so they take the Bible and they believe the bits that suit them and suit their purpose. Yes, they want to show love. But in their zeal for showing love to the world, they allow the world to set the agenda. As one commentator has put it, the church who weds the spirit of this age will find herself a widow in the next. 
And we see this accommodation in things today. Things such as interfaith services, where leaders and people of different religions and beliefs come together and worship together. But what this means is that Jesus Christ is not receiving his unique position. Christians believe and have always believed that there is no other way to God but through Jesus Christ. These interfaith meetings mean that Jesus is one way among many ways that we can reach God. But that is not Christian. It's also seen in the appointment of homosexual clergy. This is Bishop Jean Robinson, the first openly homosexual uh, bishop that was appointed in America. And it's seen as nothing wrong. It is argued he's in a loving, stable relationship. Why not put him in this position? It's also seen in the church blessing same-sex unions. Now I cannot say that the church is offering God's blessing on that. Because I don't believe God blesses something that is against his will. But it is acceptable in these churches. Now we can look at these images, we can balk at these images and think what is the church coming to? But let me ask again the question that I asked before in a slightly different perspective. When we leave the comfort of our church fellowship and we go out there and rub shoulders with the people of the world, how distinctive are we? Do we stand up and show our Christian faith or do we blend in with everyone else? So the two opposite reactions, one of separation from the world, one of accommodation with the world. But there is a third way, the way of engagement. And this is the way that Jesus taught. Yes, Christians are called out of the world. We are not to be influenced uh, by the sinfulness of the world. We're to come out of that. But we are also sent back into the world. In his high priestly prayer, the prayer which Jesus um, made to his Father, which we read in John 17, Jesus emphasized that although his disciples were not of the world, they were definitely to be in the world. How else? Can we be salt of the earth and light of the world if we are not engaging with the world? Listen again to the words from Matthew. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything 
except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Often we can criticize the low moral standards of our world. Corruption in government and financial institutions. The recent riots in GB. Those terrible indiscriminate murders in Norway. The awful trade of human trafficking for uh, the sex trade. And we can add many, many other incidences. These are ghastly symptoms of a depraved world. But John Stott wisely observed, you cannot blame the meat for going rotten. That is what meat does. You blame the salt for not being there to preserve it. Society is corrupt and depraved and will continue to rot unless a preservative is applied to prevent it. The people of this world are still a people living in darkness who need the light to shine on them. Jesus charged his disciples and every disciple since, including you and me, with the task of being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But in order for salt to be effective, it needs to be shaken out of the salt cellar. We need to be shaken up and shaken out. We need to spread the salt of the gospel both to preserve against corruption and to add flavour to life. We must engage with the world to show what life in all its abundance means. This world promises much but delivers little. People are constantly searching for their next fix, a higher high, a greater thrill only to discover that nothing ever satisfies. We need to spread the salt of love and joy and peace so that people can taste and see that the Lord is good. We are also to be light in a dark world. For light to be effective, it must be seen, not hidden away. The light that emanates from us is not some kind of inner light that is found within. But it is a reflected light from Christ who is the true light of the world. For when others see our light, they are not to praise us, they are to praise our Father in heaven. So we are to engage with the world as salt and light. Salt must be spread around, not remain in a salt shaker. Light is to be seen, not hidden away. Not away in church meetings, 
It's not away in fellowship groups or in Bible studies. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we don't need these things. Of course we do. We need to meet together. We need to get around God's word. We need to build up our faith and build up each other. We need these things. But we also need more. And so does the world. If we spend our Christian lives running from one meeting to another, how can we hope to spread the salt or to shine the light of the gospel? As evangelicals, we probably don't have much time for the Roman Mass. But I wonder, do you know where that word comes from? The Mass. Well, it's derived from the final sentence of the Old Latin right now. I apologize if there are any Latin scholars here this morning. I'm going to attempt to pronounce this. If I do it wrong, you can tell me afterwards. But it's something like, Ite misse est. That was the last word spoken when the Mass was said in Latin. And in polite language, what it means is, you are now dismissed. But in more blunt language, it's, get out there. Isn't this a timely reminder to all of us that we must go out into all the world and to live the life, to be salt and light? There's one church notice board back at home and it proclaims this on the back as the people are leaving uh, to go through the gate out into the street. It says the worship has ended. The service begins. Now it's all very well knowing this. The important thing is doing it. How can we be salt and light as we engage in the world? Just want to give a couple of examples to finish with. Something to ponder on and perhaps to take up. There are several charities serving Toravieka and the surrounding area. Things like AIDS Concern, Alzheimer's Society, Health, AECC, and many others. Now these charities are not overtly Christian, but they are doing the work that Christians ought to be doing. But rather than the church starting up yet another charity, why not consider volunteering for one of these charities and being a Christian influence within them? What they're doing is good. I believe it is the Lord's work. But it also needs the Lord's people to do that work. That's one way we can be salt and light. Another if you pick up any of the free papers and look at the notices, there are numerous clubs and societies throughout Paravieka and beyond. Drama groups galore, dance troops, camera clubs, 
choirs. There's even one club where the only uh, requirement for entry into membership is that you don't smoke. The non-smoking club. These groups are populated by people who do not go to church. How are they going to hear the good news of Jesus Christ? But if we as Christians joined one or two of these societies, we could engage with their members on their own territory in a non-threatening way. Again, another way to be salt and light. So these are just two examples of how we can bridge that sacred, secular divide and engage with the world. So let us shake some salt. Let us spread some light. We pray together.